This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 97, and it's for Valentine's Day. It's a special interview with Casty Cash of That Shakespeare Girl about Shakespeare and love. Because when we think about Shakespeare, we often think about love, don't we? All these great love quotes. And he was also such an enigma with his own love life. And so I thought it would be great to have her on the show to talk about what we know about Shakespeare and love and what his plays tell us about how he saw love. Also, those of you who are really aware and following and really with it, will notice that I had actually said I would be back with the Battle of Lepanto before this. I got the flu. I got that nasty flu that's going around and it knocked me out for about a week and a half. And so I am behind with my Lepanto research. So I will be back with that in about a week and a half. And I don't like to skip things up like this and switch around and not do an episode when I said I was going to do it. So I apologize to those of you who are really with it and um, really keeping track of me and my episodes. <laughs> so I didn't forget about it. It will be here. Blame the flu. So before we get started, I need to thank my patrons who help keep this show independent. I have amazing patrons. Thank you to Heather, who has an awesome name, Elizabeth, Kathy Jurgen, Cynthia, also Jessica, Lady Anne, Diane, Olivia, Al, Ashley, Kendra, Cynthia, Judith, Selene, Lara, Ian, Barbara, Shar, Kiva, Amy, Allison, Joanne, Kathy, Christine, Annetta, Susan, Andrea, Catherine, John, Rebecca from Tudor's Dynasty, and Shandor. Thank you, you guys. I love you. You're awesome. To find out how you can join this exclusive list of awesome people starting at just a dollar an episode, head on over to patreon.com slash englandcast 
to start supporting the show now. That's patreon.com slash Englandcast. Or if you want to support the show another way, you can always head on over to tutorfair.com, which is my online shop filled with all kinds of great tutor goodness, like these awesome t-shirts featuring kick-ass tutor women and their famous quotes that would be perfect to wear on International Women's Day coming up and throughout all of Women's History Month, really. Also, some of you already know that as part of the shop, I recently launched a subscription box service. You know, the subscription boxes you can get like for makeup and dog toys and coffee and any number of other interests? Well, I'm starting one for Tudor products. It's called Treasures from Bess. It's named after my history heroine, Bess of Hardwick. The first boxes for March are actually already sold out, but you can learn more at treasuresfrombess.com and get on the list for the April box, which will ship the first week of April. Finally, the Agora Podcast Network recently launched a free Facebook group for listeners of our respective podcasts to get together and talk about history, podcasts, and dive deeper into different episodes and themes. So you can search for the Agora Podcast Listeners Forum on Facebook to join. So now let me introduce you briefly to Cassidy Cash, then we'll jump right into the interview. Cassidy Cash produces a weekly video series on William Shakespeare for her YouTube channel, That Shakespeare Girl. And she's currently recording episodes to launch That Shakespeare Life podcast in April of 2018. Cassidy is a respected Shakespeare consultant, as well as a regular contributor to digital and print publications on the life and plays of William Shakespeare. She's a partner with British History Tours and will be leading a tour of Shakespeare's life in Stratford-upon-Avon in England in 2019. And she believes that understanding the history of Shakespeare's life and the culture of Renaissance England is essential to the study of Shakespeare's plays. So we jumped right in with me asking her what Shakespeare's love life was really like, because there's so many rumors, there's so many different things that you hear about the second best bed in the will and not reading the bands and everything like that when they got married Shakespeare and Anne Hathaway didn't read the bands publicly as many times as they should. And she was pregnant. And so there's all these different rumors around that. So I asked Cassidy to elaborate a little bit on Shakespeare's own love life. And I think one thing we do learn from history is despite the lack of reliability, there's often truth found inside the rumor and the legend. And Shakespeare is an example of this. With his love life, Anne Hathaway kind of gets a bad rap. She gets dismissed because she was this kept woman. You know, she was tossed aside and left in Stratford alone while ambitious Shakespeare frittered away off to London to selfishly make his fortune. And I think that, I mean, there's some facts there. Obviously, they got married and she stayed in Stratford and he went to London. But I don't think that she was abandoned. This was kind of a life that she chose. And I think their marriage relationship and what we do know about how they got married tells us that because, I mean, she was pregnant when they got married and people point to that as, oh gosh, that she was pregnant when they got married. So that must be the reason that they rushed into marriage. And I think that that's a modern interpretation Mm -hmm. um, because at the time being pregnant or getting pregnant was often used as a kind of betrothal. It was a statement Mm -hmm. of, I'm already committed to this woman. And the marriage was the legal side of it, but it wasn't necessarily the commitment side of it. So her being pregnant could have just as much been an indication that Shakespeare was committed to her. Um, The idea of the bans not being read three times has also been tossed out as an indication that the marriage was rushed. And that might be true, but it could be just as true that maybe they were more 
progressive or modern minded and opted out of that tradition. You obviously can't know about why they didn't read the bands three times without asking them. Mm -hmm. Um, Me personally, I'm a hopeless romantic and Mm -hmm. I like to believe that um, he did love her. We know that Shakespeare traveled regularly back to Stratford while he was working in London. And I don't think a man who doesn't love a woman travels regularly to the town where she lives in, especially if that town is a small town like Stratford. So the fact that he went back there regularly shows that maybe he wasn't the what we would consider a modern definition of a faithful husband and devoted father. But I think that that action indicates that he probably was, you know, for the late 16th century. And Mm -hmm. another aspect of their marriage that I really like is you mentioned the second best bed. Mm -hmm. Um, I've always thought that with little nod was one of the most romantic. I mean, can you imagine what kind of inside jokes they might have had about the bed when a couple gets married as Shakespeare did when he wasn't popular or well off financially, but he stayed married to Anne through basically from poverty to riches. They probably had stories they could tell, but would only whisper to themselves about the second best bed. And so, I mean, why go to the trouble of writing out that it was the second best in your will if it didn't mean something to her? Wasn't it also like the best bed wouldn't have necessarily been the marital bed. That was the bed like for guests and the second best bed would actually have been the bed that they shared kind of thing. I, that's what I've thought. Yes. Yeah. So that, that's what it, I mean, but I'm not, I'm not an expert in 17th century beds. So, (laughs) I mean, I can't, I can't know for sure, but I've always thought it was interesting that he was so detailed, like who lists off, make sure she gets the second best bed, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, it seems like something about that was important, whether it was an insult to her or a, you know, statement of, of romance is probably up to interpretation, but Mm -hmm. I I lean towards the romantic side of it myself. I see. Well, I like that. That's, that's sweet. Um, So what do you think about what we can infer about how Shakespeare viewed love based on the representations of love in his plays? And, you know, I mentioned like, it seems like it never really ends fully happily for anybody even in the the comedies and the ones where there's like the supposed happy ending, someone always seems to have to sacrifice something. And I'm thinking specifically of like the taming of the shrew, how the, the shrew has to be tamed. And then in the, the places where there are, there is actually genuine romantic love seems to just end in everybody dying. <laughs> and it just seems like it, there's never really just this, this nice marriage of like, people just coming together and being nice and happy. And, you know, I'm sure part of that is because of the stories he was telling and and the drama and everything like that. But it just, it just kind of seems, it makes me feel a little bit cynical about what, what he seemed to think about love. So what, what do you get out of the way he describes love? Well, my, my English degree background insists that I point out the idea of intentional fallacy and say that, you know, Shakespeare could write about being a horseshoe maker and it wouldn't make him personally a farrier. So mm-hmm. I think there's that aspect to it. But I think probably first and foremost, Shakespeare was a businessman and he knew his audience very well. So I think more than what Shakespeare personally thought about love, you get a taste through what he wrote of what love was thought of in that time period during the 16th and 17th century, what did his audience think or find entertaining 
about love. And as far, as far as love stories that all end in tragedy, I mean, we have Tarantino today, so you can take <laughs> extremes, extremes of, of everything. So, um, I think theater and stage performance was so tense during Shakespeare's lifetime with many playwrights, including some of his contemporaries like Ben Johnson getting put in prison for misrepresenting some minor things in a play, that what we confer about Shakespeare's opinions is that he didn't write for his own personal opinion. He wrote to please the crown, to stay out of prison, and to make money doing what he was good at. Mm. Um, His sonnets are probably really where it gets more personal, but I still don't think they're necessarily personal declarations about Shakespeare as a man. Um, some of the things that you'll read in there have different, different themes that could be about Shakespeare's opinion of love. And it could also just be, Hey, this would look really great, Mm -hmm. you know, in a book or when I write this in the play, people are going to gasp at this moment. And that was the effect it would have on the audience was important. So. Yeah. Well, so can you tell me about the sonnets then? All of them? (laughs) Tell me about the sonnets in like 10 minutes. (laughs) Who were they? And this wasn't one of the questions I sent you, so I apologize. I know you're having to off the cuff here or whatever. It's okay. We can off the cuff it. um, Who were they written for? I know that's like a mystery. Um, What was the kind of events surrounding the writing of the sonnets? How were they all compiled? Like, what what can you tell us about the sonnets? I'll admit to not knowing as much of the history of the sonnets in terms of who he wrote them for or who paid for them or, you know, how much money exchanged hands for their publications and all of that, which I think is relevant to Shakespeare. But they are poems and not diary entries. So I think it's reasonable to consider that, like a poet, the images were there to stand in for something else. And I think he used some of his imagery to talk about broader issues that he couldn't come right out and express because of the politics of the day for, well, for example, in Sonnet 127, Shakespeare writes, fairing the foul with art's false borrowed face. And I think of how in one of his Henry plays, he talks about King Charles of France and the image in the play is of him being this proud, responsible king, when in fact, that particular king of France was a lunatic. He was known as Charles the Mad. And so Shakespeare's painting him as this nice person when he was really crazy. So Mm -hmm. he has painted fair the foul reality of this King Charles and using his art of the theater to give him a borrowed face. And so I think one of the things that we see in the sonnets is not strictly, you know, love declarations, but we also see sort of the turmoil of a man who is separated from the theater and thinking back over, you know, what did I write? What, how have I influenced this? Especially with the political nature of the theater and how, how much the monarchy depended on the theater to present certain political agendas to their nobles that were in the room for the play. And it was all this big political game. And Shakespeare was probably writing a lot about the conflict internally that that would bring to an artist. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, Yeah. And I mean, what do it's interesting. Like, what do you think about what he thought his legacy would be? And I, this is, again, I'm just asking you off the cuff here, but you know, just thinking about, that he was writing this for commercial purposes. Did he think that 400 years after he died, we'd still be tearing these things apart? Do you think? 
No, I don't think so. Actually, I think one of the reasons Shakespeare's uh, enjoyed such longevity with his legacy is specifically because it's not white, what he was focused on when he was doing his work. He was mm-hmm. focused on being the best at the career he had chosen to do. He was talented. He was, I would say, or you know, extraordinarily talented. He had a great gift for dialogue and communication and theater. And he applied that to what he was doing. But no, I don't think he thought he would be known you know, by the time his grandchildren were grown, much less 400 years later. Mm. Interesting. And so back to the sonnets, um, I asked in one of my questions, like this, the, one of the things people have been talking about for 400 years is who this dark lady is that makes this appearance in the sonnets. And I've heard all kinds of theories about that from, um, a woman who owned a brothel in Southwark to, you know, all just all kinds of people. And um, what, what do you, what's your thought? Well, as a dramatist and an artist, Shakespeare was in a committed relationship to his patrons. He was bound dutifully to write what they would approve of, to stage what they would enjoy and to pay to have performed. And while he was good at his job, it doesn't mean he was necessarily indulging his own creative ideas. He was instead applying his creativity for the satisfaction of others. And maybe it's my inner poet, but I take the sonnets much less literally than people tend to when they talk about the dark lady and see it as figurative, the way poems are often meant to be. And the mistress he refers to is his real creativity buried in the shadows beneath his personal commitments. And maybe, maybe you could argue I'm not an expert and whatever, but I think that he's calling attention to the fact that what his audience considered beautiful and to be esteemed is false and is a narrative contrived by the wants and desires of his audience. I think the sexual terms that you have in the Dark Lady sonnets like lust and desire and seduction can all be used to describe what drives a particular audience to want to see in a theater. And the, the rival poet argument is just as easily... Shakespeare lamenting that the muse has given her graces to someone like Ben Jonson, who presented this amazing court mask before James I. And we can see from some of the elements Shakespeare included in his plays after that, that Shakespeare was envious of Ben Jonson for how well he had done. And some of the examples, like when Shakespeare talks about black wires in her head, I think that can refer to the stage and his performance technique of suspending objects over the stage using wires. And that Mm. would out of the top of the stage's head. So I think Shakespeare is using the language of the sonnets and the imagery of love and sex, which is true to the form of a sonnet, to talk about his love, frustrations and passions with his first love, which is the theater. I don't think Shakespeare was having an affair or an illicit relationship with anyone. I think he was writing the sonnets when he really wanted to be in London performing plays, but plague had trapped him outside the city And he was doing what he could to make money in this undefined interim until they decided to open the theater back and he could go back to his love that was there Mm. in London. Mm. I I think the dark lady was the theater. Interesting. That's, that's a good one. (laughs) So what, um, you know, this, this episode is going to go out around Valentine's Day and there's so many quotes that people use at this time on Valentine's with all these just great love quotes. And what do you think is it that um, has him stay 
so relevant and be able to express even 400 years later emotions that people have now and this kind of these universal themes that he touches on like what what is it for you that keeps him so relevant what do you find exciting about him and why do you think he stays so relevant i think what i find exciting about shakespeare is what a large part of people find exciting about Shakespeare and it's the ability to self-identify with what he is writing. But I think it's not because Shakespeare is so much universal. I really don't think he is. I think Mm -hmm. Shakespeare is the embodiment of rule number one of entrepreneurship, which is the narrower your topic, the broader your reach. Shakespeare Mm -hmm. was very, very narrow in what he was writing and narrow topics help people self-identify. A broad scope makes it harder to do that when you can effectively communicate um, very specific ideas it draws others to you and to your content and so I think Shakespeare at the time he was writing and what he was writing always had a very narrow focus and a very narrow audience but his stories while great examples of the complicated nature of of love and and humanity the reason they enjoy this broad reach is because when we read it, its narrow focus allows us as an audience to self-identify with what we're seeing. Like mm-hmm. when Hamlet is plagued with emotions and asking all these questions on stage, we as audience members are sitting there asking the same questions about Hamlet and we understand what it's like to have that struggle. But the text itself that Shakespeare wrote was very, very focused. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, there's so much I, there's so much I want to ask you about here. I love that what you said, like there's that rule that if you're trying to talk to everybody, you're talking to nobody and, um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so Shakespeare knew this probably better than anyone else. And I, I don't know if he did it on purpose, but he definitely wasn't writing to the entire world. He wasn't even writing to different countries. I think he was writing sometimes he was writing specifically to one person, the monarch that was reigning at the time. He was writing to please that person and that's it. You can't really get a more narrow focus than writing to one person. To one person, sure. What happened with him when, with the changeover um, from when Elizabeth died and James became king? How did that affect him? Well, his audience changed and his, the focus changed. I think Elizabeth had a lot to overcome in terms of being a woman, in terms of not being married, not having kids. She had a lot of political agendas that didn't apply to James. And so what she wanted to see from the theater, what she considered a, a good story was different. I think in Elizabethan Shakespeare, you see a lot of stories that are pro-England. They're like cheerleader statements about the strength and honor of this great country. And then with the turnover to James, you've you've got the gunpowder plot is sort of kicking off his reign. It's like, okay, this is a horrible way to start things there, James. So you've got a country that is reeling from a massive foiled terrorist attack and they almost lost this king. And it's at a time when... And everybody in parliament, too. It wasn't just the king. It was like... Exactly. It was going to take out everybody. And yeah. so it's just panic and stress. And James is already trying to function as a peacemaker because everybody's freaking out over Catholic versus Protestant. People are wondering, you know, Scotland versus England. Are we going to be friends? Are we going to come together? Are we not? And so it's a significant amount of turmoil. And so I think with plays like Macbeth that come after 
James takes the throne, you see Shakespeare really trying to play to James's priorities of unifying the country. And so you see a lot of uh, unification themes, a lot of, you know, let's come together um, and work together kind of themes in his plays. So I think there's a, a significant shift, which is kind of why I think Shakespeare was so aware of his audience because he didn't write the same thing the whole time. You do see him change when his audience changes. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I want to ask you about like his early life because how, how do you think he got involved in wanting to go into the theater? Um, And you know, I, this is like, way. Oh, that is such a fun question. Okay. Okay, great. I'm glad. Yeah. Awesome. No, I love that question. Actually, I think it started when he was in grammar school. I think probably, um, and actually James Shapiro talks about this in his book, 1599, and he mentions it again in the year of Lear, but the idea that Shakespeare may have actually read, uh, read? No, that (laughs) Shakespeare may have actually met Richard Burbage when he was a child because Richard Burbage was part of one of the touring companies. Um, James Burbage, his father, would tour through Stratford. And it was Shakespeare's dad who had to approve these plays coming into Stratford. So there's a high probability that Shakespeare was exposed to real acting companies as a child. But his education in grammar school was centered around the theater. They would study people like Sophocles and Euripides who were Greek tragedians and they were dramatists in their own right. And so some of the Latin and Greek that he was studying in school was all drama. And the school itself, actually, at the end of the year each year, Shakespeare and his classmates would put on a play for the end of the year. And it would be to demonstrate their memorization skills and their learning of Latin and all of this that they had done during school. But he was definitely exposed and rather saturated with the theater um, as a child. So I really think he got into this early. He knew early on what it was he wanted to become and was kind of on that trajectory from the beginning. Yeah. I've heard a theory. I think it was the book, um, Will in the World, um, that... Bill Bryson? And uh, that, it wasn't the Bill Bryson one. It's another Stephen one. Greenblatt. Yeah, 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 him. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it said that it's possible that he would have been at the uh, amazing pageants that Robert Dudley had for Queen Elizabeth at Kenilworth when he staged this. Yes. I read that too. Yeah. And I, I just love that idea thinking about that because it was only like eight or nine miles away, I think. And so um, that was impressive to me. Yeah. It's fascinating to think, Oh my gosh, it was right there. There's no way he didn't know. And so. his father was as his father, what, what his father had some kind of a role in town where it's possible that he would have been involved in putting on the festivities and, you know, the idea that maybe Shakespeare tagged along as, you know, as a young kid and saw this stuff and was impressed by that. I just, I love that, that vision of him because that was, that pageant was just the most amazing thing England had ever seen. And I can just imagine his eyes just being like boggled and amazed. Exactly. I I picture like a seven-year-old William Shakespeare, like standing between adults, like peeking around someone's leg to watch this play going on on the other side and just, you know, the pageantry of it all because they brought it out here to the country. So they had to have, you know, overcompensating for the lack of uh, sets or staging with elaborate performance. I I would have been amazing to see, I'm sure. It, It had to have made an impression. 
Yeah, yeah. How do you, and I'm getting way off topic here, but you know a lot about this, you know more about this than me. And um, I'm interested in how theater changed throughout his lifetime, because it went from almost being like a, a religious, the mummers plays and that kind of thing, to then suddenly the Puritans didn't didn't want it at all. Oh my gosh, the Puritans caused so many problems. They really did. <laughs> with theater. Yes, they did. They were not they were not nice. But that I mean that was their religious conviction at the time that they didn't they didn't like. But it's theater. just interesting that it was like the Protestants that almost got theater started in putting on some of these masks early on to tell these religious stories and kind of PR the Reformation kind of stuff. And I just wonder exactly. what you think about that. Nobody tells you that, you know, you, you listen to this and you're like, wow, the Protestants started theater really. But, yeah. but you're right. They did. It was a, it was a way to, and, and it's interesting that you mentioned that because the mum, the mummery plays weren't that different from the Elizabethan stage in the fact that they were coming from a place of political agenda. And mm-hmm. it was, it was highly scrutinized in Shakespeare's time. You had to be very careful um, how close to the, prevailing political winds you chose to sail there with what you put on stage because there were contemporaries of Shakespeare that would get put in prison for oh you used the wrong word and that made somebody in power really mad and so now well you're going you know to prison and I think dialogue was huge for lack of a better word it Mm -hmm. was really important that you get the words right and that you communicate correctly but I don't think I think maybe the form changed. Obviously they didn't do as many religious plays or they weren't acting out the Bible when Shakespeare was putting things on stage. But I think the idea that it had a political angle changed a lot. It's also interesting that it went from being this very conservative, very something you would do in church to being a community that was pretty rife with various forms of debauchery and considered kind of the the bad side of town if you were it was kind of the sketchy you know the the people of disrepute were found in theaters and actually elizabeth one time when she was ordering conscription for um wars abroad she would go to the theater because she thought the people who frequented the theaters were expendable so when she needed a whole bunch of people to fight and she didn't care if they died or not she would go to the theaters to find them Mm. and it was that kind of thing there was a reputation about the theater that I think Shakespeare helped uh, reframe I think the reason modern day theater is considered this highbrow affair or this high society way to be or thing to be involved in is because Shakespeare's reputation helped carry it there I think when he Mm. was And I've actually wondered about the disconnect there because on the one hand, it's this thing that's disreputable. And on the other hand, you have sitting monarchs regularly ordering in these plays. So how disreputable could it have really been if they're saying, well, I want you to perform for my nobles. That doesn't sound disreputable to me. So I'm not sure where the, where the disconnect is. If it's happening in a playhouse, somehow it's, um, of low value, but if it's happening in a court session, now it's, now it's grand and it's acceptable. You know, it's interesting. Just what you say there reminds me of that, of the movie Amadeus and how there was like the court opera 
and then toward and then it shows Mozart um, composing like uh, the magic flute for the the local opera and it you know and how different it was and there's like these scenes where it shows the the court opera and he's doing you know these um you know very highbrow kinds of pieces and then he's doing like the folk tales and stuff for the people and and people his wife was saying like why do you compose for this stuff and he says well they give me money and that's why I do and it's just exactly that same kind of disconnect that you that you talk about well I often wonder if that's not why Shakespeare's works they have this intentional duplicity to them where you read this phrase and it could mean one thing, but it could just as easily mean something else. Uh, James Shapiro calls it, um, he has this word that I should know. And I can't remember because I'm trying to say it to you right now. (laughs) Equivocation. Oh, okay. Um, and how this word was coming into its definition during this time. It wasn't typically used, but the word um, when it got used in plays or when it got used during investigations for the gunpowder plot, the the definition they put behind the word equivocation was the idea to say one thing but mean another or to say something and not complete the thought so that you said something that sounded like it could mean one thing, but if you had finished your thought, it would mean something else. Mm. And he goes on to talk about how the play Macbeth was written with a ton of equivocation in it, the idea that you can never really be sure what the person speaking actually meant. And I wonder if Shakespeare didn't include that because it was a a time of duplicity and society really was sort of split into two camps. And he was having to please monarchs and nobles and people that had one set of expectations, but he was having to take that same play back to his playhouse and sell tickets um, for a completely different audience. And so when you write something that can leave room for a wide amount of interpretation, but still follow an organized plot line, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. No, really. It, it, yeah, it really is. Um, Gosh, I could just, I could just talk to you forever. Um, there's a there's a story I love, and I wonder if you can tell it if if you know it or if you could tell me that um, what you think happened. And it's a, a story I love about Shakespeare, um, kind of being a I don't know some like the idea of when they moved the Globe Theater across the frozen. Yes, town. I do know that story. <laughs> can Can you tell me what Can you tell me what happened? Can you tell us what happened? I love it. Yes. Yes, I can tell you what happened. When they started uh, the Globe Theater, it wasn't actually the Globe. It was called The Theater, and it was James Burbage's theater. Um, I'm not sure how partnered with Richard Burbage he was, but it was kind of a family thing. So it was James and Richard have the theater, but they were leasing the land from someone else, and their lease ran up. And I don't know quite... Uh, the details of why they weren't allowed to renew their lease or why they couldn't, you know, pay him something and get this back. But basically the man who owned the land said, no, you've got to leave. I'm kicking you out. And so Shakespeare got together with Richard Burbage and some of the other uh, Will Kemp and some of the other people that were his friends and compatriots there in the theater. And they got together and said, well, we're going to start our own theater. And so they, t- they waited in- until it was nighttime and they went over there together and beam by beam, they dismantled the entire theater. And this is, you know, this is in the dead of winter. It's like snowing outside and it's cold. Yeah. Yeah. And they dismantled the whole thing and carried it across the river outside of the jurisdiction of the city of London. Right. So they can't right. to Southwark across the, the police river. can't come and get them and be, and prosecute them for this. So they take it across there and they rebuild it 
on the other side of the river and create the Globe Theater that we think of as Shakespeare's Globe Theater. But it was him and his friends because they owned the theater. They just didn't own the land. And so they stole it. (laughs) That's so, I just love that idea. I think the story was that when the lease came up for renewal, it was at a period when they were starting to frown upon um, theaters in general. And the guy who owned it didn't want to be associated with the theaters and um yeah he he had some issues with with the reputation of the theater yeah yeah I love that story though it's just so perfect I know it's it's amazing to me um it's Shakespeare's definitely someone I would have loved to have been friends with yeah yeah okay so I got way off topic here um but (laughs) (laughs) I want to have like two final thoughts and I guess the first is um well I would like for you to kind of give us an overview of what you think Shakespeare can, I don't know, like how, how we can see love through his eyes, because I am going to release this around Valentine's day. So the romantic yeah. sense of Shakespeare. And then I want you to plug your podcast. Okay. Um, I think Shakespeare gives words to our deepest emotions of love. And he enables us to say what you are normally only feeling, which is a distinctly different action, right? To Mm -hmm. put words to something that you think is different than to give words to a feeling, which is by its very nature, not originating in the mind. But Mm -hmm. to share love with someone, you have to be able to communicate it to them. And in a lot of instances, Shakespeare's sonnets and his plays put down into words that we can use to say, yes, this is how I feel, or this is what my emotion is, and and I can express that out loud now. And I think that's why Shakespeare is so good at helping us share love with. One of my favorite quotes is from Hamlet, and I, I hate, it's so sad to me every time that I interact with this play that that Hamlet doesn't actually say this to Ophelia, that it's written in a letter, and Polonius, who for whatever reason I just do not like for the entire play, mm-hmm. but he reads it, but he says, Hamlet says to Ophelia, doubt thou the stars are fire, doubt that the sun doth move, doubt truth to be a liar, but never doubt I love. And I think I love that because it just, yes, exactly. Thank mm-hmm. you, Hamlet. There are all these things in life that are questions and you, you don't know how it's going to go and you don't know if what you think you know is real, but you can know love from one person to another. You so can that's rest a good quote that people can put on a Valentine's Day card. Though. Is it not? It looks beautiful <laughs> on a Valentine's Day card. It really does. <laughs> Shakespeare gives us a lot of those. Yes. This is really great on a card. Yeah. But, and... but yeah, so I, I think that's one of the reasons. Anyway, I hope I answered your question. No, you did. You did. So then where can people learn more about you? And do you have any kind of podcast coming up? I do. I am launching my podcast called That Shakespeare Life on April 23rd, 2018. We will be celebrating Shakespeare's birthday by launching a podcast all about his life. And so you can find out more about that at CassidyCash.com. That's my uh, website there. I've got YouTube videos and we're planning a, a trip to Stratford for 2019. So all kinds of great things to find out about over there. All right. So CassidyCash.com, you said, right? That's right. It's just like my name, CassidyCash.com. 
if you want to see that Shakespeare life, it's slash that Shakespeare life, but it's also all over the webpage. So there's buttons and things to check that out. And right now, if you're interested in the trip, you'll have to email me because we're not, we're not making that public yet, but, but it's coming. Okay, cool. Good stuff. Um, And I'll just now thank you for coming on to this show and telling us more about Shakespeare. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed being here. Thanks to Cassidy Cash for being here and talking to us about Shakespeare and love on this Valentine's Day. Remember, you can learn more about her at CassidyCash.com. And I just want to take a second to thank you, my wonderful listeners, for listening and give you some love. And also to share that I am in my 40s and I was single for a super long time and I have been on every area conceivable on the Valentine's Day spectrum, thinking it's totally awesome, thinking it's horrible and the worst thing in the world. And actually, when I lived in London, I was about 25, I guess, 24, 25. And there was a, um, there was one Valentine's Day where I did not have a boyfriend and it was raining and I didn't have an umbrella. And I was walking down Oxford Street, looking at all these couples and, you know, going out for dinner. And then like a bus splashed me. (laughs) It was just like the most perfect scene out of a movie of like Lonely Heather. So I want to leave you with a quote wherever you are in the Valentine's Day world. This is a Shakespeare quote. And I think it's important to sum up that it doesn't matter if you have a love or not. The most important love and most important relationship you can have in your life is with yourself and your creativity, your spirituality, and your uniqueness that is the you that will never exist again in this whole entire universe. So it says, self-love, my liege, is not so vile a sin as self-neglecting. So please do not neglect yourself today. Please do something awesome for yourself and celebrate how awesome you are because I think you're awesome. Okay, so you can learn more about the Renaissance English History Podcast at englandcast.com. You can get in touch with the listener support line, which is 801-6-TESCO. That's a US number, 801-6-TESCO. You can tweet me at Tesco at T-E-Y-S-K-O. And I will be back in about a week and a half with La Panto and Elizabeth and the Ottoman Turks. So stay tuned for that. Have a wonderful, super awesome day. And I will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Blow northern wind, send for baby sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoch auf Burden bricht, hat Sulisemlis on sich. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.